Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We are bright and fresh after the uh, American holiday, Canadian holiday. Uh, we're feeling good. I'm one half of your host, Yael Osaski, coming to you from the uh, sweltering Central European studio. And I'm joined by my colleague, David Clement, here on the other end in Toronto. David, how goes it, my man? Oh, it's going well. It's going well. It's been a scor- it has been a scorcher this week. I don't know if you knew this, Yael, a little bit tidbit of information. Um... I think Monday, Tuesday were technically the hottest days globally on record since humans kept track of this stuff. Um, I, I might have felt some of these uh, effects and impacts, yes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, not having air conditioning, I feel it even more. And uh, I've, I've had to go and buy more shorts. So uh, naturally, I went online and um, was able to, to find the ones that I wanted and have them ordered to my door. So. I'll have them tomorrow. Lovely. Lovely. You know what else is you lovely, David? The uh, media landscape in Canada. Uh, a lot of interesting things that are happening right now, and uh, I figured it'd be a good time to talk about it. Uh, we're going to have uh, good conversations about all things technology, uh, artificial intelligence, and um, cryptocurrencies and things like this with Luke Hogg of the Foundation for American Innovation. That'll be uh, after the break. Uh, here for two seconds to talk about that but let's focus on uh, canada we have bill c18 royal ascent now the law of the land as it were and uh, there's already been a, a lot of of different reactions both from some of the tech companies um, just to, to give a, a nice little quick analysis for for those who are listening and might not know the full deets on this bill very akin to an american or australian version david give us the lowdown um, yeah, so basically it's uh, going to come into effect later in the year. Google has announced they're going to eliminate Canadian news links from their platform, and uh, Meta is doing the same. And it is going to be an absolute disaster if something is not solved here. Um, and really it just seems like a huge unforced error on behalf of facebook um and i've yet to see anyone actually explain properly um or effectively how it is or why it is that google and facebook should pay it's like one of those things in every media article every opinion piece it's just assumed that everybody knows and i think i'm realizing now that there just really there is not a good argument for this, other than newspapers need to survive, and so somebody's got to pay. We don't want it to be the government, so we'll create this faux tax to uh, to get the companies that are profitable to to bail out the companies that may not be. Uh, and related to this, um, yeah, we had a a press conference which was given uh, yesterday. It was with um, uh, Pablo Rodriguez, who is the Minister of Heritage, patrimoine in French, and um, also, uh, you had someone from the block and you had someone from the NDP. And uh, what was interesting is, boy, I told you, I got some, some little, uh, I got some quotes from here before, but uh, essentially what, uh, this is the MDP fella, and I have my notes here. Uh, so he was mentioning, and oddly enough, I was mentioning this to someone else, uh, basically 70% of this press conference was in French, uh, which... Yeah, so there's a reason for yeah, that. Yeah, go ahead. Um, because the first news links blocked were in Quebec, were Quebec or media news links. 
Um, so I think that's probably the reason why, because they're the first impacted by this. Which, uh, in terms of, if we want to get into the, the nitty-gritty of why that would be the case, it's a rather savvy um, political move by, uh, by the folks at Meta, um, because obviously you have vote-rich Quebec, um, and that is essentially perennially a battleground electorally, uh, and so they went there first. I think you're not cynical enough. Uh, I think the reason that the majority oh. of it was in French, oh. uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think the reason the majority of it wasn't in French, and it's the same reason that uh, there's so many quotes from this that are like pretty radical policies that, you know, take a while to translate, take two or three days. So like the initial reaction is from um, French media and they say all positive things. And a lot of people will just kind of take that. But if you actually listen to the entire thing, uh, at one point, the the MP uh, from the Bloc Québécois mentions, uh, you know, perhaps we should, uh, as a government, um, not that they're in the government, but they support the government, whatever, uh, but saying maybe we should, uh, we should pay the advertisers to give them an incentive to get off of meta platforms and then take their money to go to traditional, you know, advertising platforms. <laughs> So I think cynically, uh, and I think this uh, much can be the same of, of Trudeau whenever he's in the House of Commons. If it's a very difficult question that yeah. you know, requires a bit of nuance, he'll, he'll answer only in French. He always answers. Yeah, always, always in French. Um, that, that grinds my gears, not just as an Anglophone, but ling- and, and to be fair, this is, not a, um, this is not something that's unique to Trudeau. Various conservative leaders over the years... Would, would tend to do that as well, um, to discourage pickup in, in English media. Um, luckily, we have our uh, quadlingual correspondent, Yael Osowski, tuning in live to break it down for us. Yeah, and I've seen no analysis of this press conference um, you know, from the French side that was critical in any way. Um, and a lot of, is a lot of gatekeeping. And a lot of the, the Franco journalists who were there were from, you know, the, the Quebec Hall and all the, the major outlets. So obviously they're very favorable to this. And um, just really quick for, for anyone who's like, what do they mean by gatekeeping? The opinion pages of the major news publications will not run submissions against this bill. Um, and I can anecdotally say that for myself, but there are people much smarter and much brighter and much more um, astute when it comes to this policy who have said the same, where they've had things submitted, approved, then spiked, um, because they were in favor, or they were not in favor of this bill. So there's some real gatekeeping going on on, on the side of publishers, uh, which, I mean, is their right. They are quasi-private industries. However, it is uncomfortable. Yeah, and I think uh, the uh, sort of scenario that... Uh... <laughs> that Trudeau is painting right now is that it's it's a World War II fight for democracy. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's uh, what is being my said Lord. today. And um, it's all about democracy, you see, because when you use one, when the government comes in and forces one industry to pay another, you know, that's what the Nazis, that's why we fought them, apparently. Yeah, that was the, when we stormed the beaches in Normandy, that was exactly the reason. It was for, it was we, for just that. We need the auto. We need Ford to pay the horse guys now. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus. My goodness. 
My goodness. Oh, uh, I mean, yeah. So, the, yeah, battling up. And I, I did some digging on the Australian um, scenario, by the way, David. Uh, which they is didn't kind get of this far. You, yeah, give us the synopsis. But it was, it's a little bit different now. So um, there's, a, there's some key differences between the Canadian bill and um, the news bargaining code, as it's known down under, down in Australia. And what they have there is their, uh, there's a report that's put out by the Department of Treasury down there. And they say, oh, well, there have been 30 deals inked between uh, Google, Meta, and news publishers. And they list some of the companies. The amounts, however, are not. These are all secret. Uh, they do not need to be publicly divulged, which I believe is different in the Canadian version, as far as I understand. Um, their entire goal is, this is what um, Minister Rodriguez said, is, look, our goal is not to force them <laughs> through law it's to inspire them <laughs> they said this throughout the entire press conference we hope to inspire uh these tech firms <laughs> to just babble uh, make arrangements yeah I've, I've heard more intelligent things come out of the mouth of my 10 month old that is just babble it is uh it's babble and again uh ndp fellow was just saying like look uh these tech firms they've done very well but now it's their time to pay like this is how overt they are it's just a racket just a so, shakedown. And, and I'll give you, I'll give our listeners and I'll give you a, an example of what this means. So you, you rem, we're old enough to remember the pre-internet era, right? How did you look things up back before you could Google things? Um, back then it was uh, Ask Jeeves, Alta Vista. No, no, but uh, e even before those, even before those. There was a book. Uh, the AOL every, Newswires? I don't know. No, no. There was a book AOL that keyword? everybody had, the Yellow Pages. Oh, oh Yellow Pages, yeah. And it had all the businesses, it had all the businesses, and it had all the phone numbers and contact information. It was essentially Google plus your personal info in a book, and everybody got one. And the, the comparison I create is imagine every time someone used the Yellow Pages to find the number for the local pizza store, the Yellow Pages had to pay the pizza store. That's essentially like the dynamics that they're creating now. People use Google to find things. Ironically, I use Google to find my own articles published in Canadian papers over using their search function in the website because their search functions suck. Um, and so now you won't be able to find any of those. And so if you want to find news, you have to do the digital version of buying the newspaper, not literally buying it, depending on the outlet, but you have to go to the website. You will not be able to Google where you want to go and get there that way, which is obviously what most people do. Um, you won't be able to share any of those links on social media. It, it rolls us back to like 1997 where people consume the news either directly at the source, the newspaper, primarily either in print and now online, um, or with broadcasters, and so watching it on TV, and that's it. And I don't, that's, that is, to, think, to, to regress that far in the span of six months is very uncomfortable for consumers. That's not good. The pendulum is swinging back in real time. Uh, we're already seeing the the impact of that. Uh, they're talking a big game. Uh, the Canadian government has said they're withdrawing their own $10 million of advertising that they put on Meta 
uh, platforms, uh, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, but as was pointed out and uh, was asked by one journo in the press conference, uh, the Liberal Party will not. The Liberal Party will continue spending. <laughs> well, and, and how hypocritical is that? That the, the government will not spend money, um, but for partisan purposes, the Liberal Party will still spend. And they spend ten over ten million dollars, uh, I believe, a year. Well, that's between, the government. I don't. The party's no, got to be twice that. Oh, I think it's more. There's a. I mean, there's a gentleman we should have on, um, Dean Tester and Grant Dingwall. They kind of report on this stuff on Twitter. And they, they see all the figures, and I forget what the actual number is, but it's the millions and millions of dollars that are spent by the Liberal Party to promote things via their accounts and Justin Trudeau's account. And so it's, it is it is so much of a threat to democracy that they're not going to ease up on the partisan gas pedal for ads, which is, I mean, I think that tells you everything you need to know. Indeed it does. And uh, as we've learned from Australia, uh, you would assume this is, you know, the, the bountiful... Uh, supply of monies uh, to regional outlets, uh, but apparently not so the case in Australia. It's only um, the major corporations, uh, many of which are owned by Rupert Murdoch or uh, apparently by Paramount Global, Viacom, you know, the American conglomerate. They own a bunch of outlets down there. And um, there's been a lot of reporting about the complaints from smaller media that they actually haven't been able to even get a meeting for some of this bargaining. So what do you do in this circumstance? You're uh, just giving more of a hand up to the large media outlets. Um, so essentially what this bill does is it allows a cartel and the cartel is uh, all the big guys and it's not you if you're a local publisher. So Yeah, and I mean, it raises the question also of what's news. Like is Rebel News news? Are they going to be getting paid here? Is press progress... Technically, they should have the right to do the same, right, under this bill. Right? Is press progress, which is a progressive version of... I mean, yet they do some reporting, but I, I don't consider it of, a, of any quality. Like, are they news? And it's... Uh, either way, it's bad. Either the government picks, and that sucks, or the tech companies pick, and... We're all human. That is subject to cognitive dissonance or hypocrisy. Um, yeah, it's just just terrible. And it, again, like it's all an unforced error because it's not like this is something where the government can be like, whoa, we never knew that this was going to be the consequence. They absolutely knew, and we're living with those consequences now. Uh, Dave, there's so much more we can go on this. These bills are popping up everywhere. U.S. coming to you soon. California coming to you soon. All across Europe coming to you soon. Uh, but for our next segment, we're going to speak with Luke Hogg from the Foundation of American Innovation and talk more about AI and tech. But we'll be more on this later. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. We said you guys that we would have a, a nice guest here to try to talk about some of the big technological topics of the day. We're speaking with Mr. Luke Hogg. He is the Director of Outreach at the Foundation for American Innovation. Luke, good man. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me, guys. So we got a lot of things uh, that we could talk to you about. Uh, you've you've been writing a good amount on artificial intelligence and what the rules should be. There's been a lot of innovations happening. Uh, just closing my Edge browser now so I can get the, uh, the little Bing AI machine out of the way. <laughs> uh, so you wrote an article uh, not too long ago, uh, I believe this is back in March, about AI democratizing government. 
And uh, we'll link to that in the show notes. I think there's a lot of interesting points that you made about chat GPT, open AI, um, some of the monopolies of information and um, how things could change a little bit. Um, since you've written this article, um, has anything kind of changed in your thinking on AI governance or basically what the role of government should be when it comes to this? You know, that's a really good question. So it's funny that you're still using the Bing browser because now Google has, um, they've inserted their own AI uh, into Google search. In BARF, right? BARF. Yeah, BARF. Or is it called BARF? I, I don't know what it's called. Um, BART, I think. But yeah. it's, it's really fun to, to see these developments kind of happen in real time. And I think um, broadly speaking, when it comes to like talking about AI in the policy sphere on Capitol Hill, um, it's really heartening to see uh, lawmakers, policymakers be on the, the cutting edge of something for once. So there's a, there's a saying that floats around in kind of tech policy that Congress is always 10 years behind the technology. You know, we saw this with cryptocurrency. We saw this with the Internet. We saw this with basically every other type of technology. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, Congress is all over AI. Like there's lots of interest. There's lots of people that... Um, admittedly don't know very much about the technology and really just want to go out and learn um, and get the information. So, you know, um, when it comes to kind of the the AI and democracy piece, I think, um, you know, seeing some of the risks play out and, and, and kind of understanding some of those risks has been um, very educational and kind of listening to some of the smarter minds um, lay out what some of the risks in the long term could be. Um, I think in the short term, there aren't really very many risks that are associated with this kind of technology. Um, but in kind of broad strokes, there's there's really kind of two camps that have emerged um, when it comes to talking about AI and, and regulation and policy. And there's kind of the let's study and report um, camp. And that's so um, Ted Lieu uh, and Ken Buck just had a bill that came out um, that was basically like, oh, well, let's put together this blue ribbon commission. Basically, let's get all the smart people in a room together and let's talk about this. Um, but, you know, we're not going to do broad sweeping regulations. We're not going to be doing crazy things. Uh, it's more about let's learn about it and let's figure it out. Um, then there's kind of the more radical um, side of the equation that is basically we need to regulate this now. I, you know, I was. Um, I have a confession to make. I tend to listen to national public radio on the way to work. It's very soothing. <laughs> You're done. <laughs> done. Shut off. Cut out. Um, well, from now on, I'm going to listen to Consumer Choice Center podcast instead. Um, but they were talking about there's especially among kind of progressive liberal circles. There's a lot of concern about um, employment and how this is going to impact people's work. There's a lot of concern about um, you know, these very potential risks, you know, I think that these are all good things and we can get into that. Um, but they're basically clamoring that we need to, we need to shut this down. We need to put the genie back in the bottle. We need to set up rules and regulations right now, um, to make sure that, you know, this doesn't blow up the economy in their opinion. Um, so there's that, those are the kind of two camps and I'm very much more in the, like, let's study, let's, let's think about this. And for that second camp, um, are they, does it, maybe I'm wrong, but does it not feel like they are just repeating the same old, same arguments of yesteryear in regards to any new technological advancement and the impact that will have on jobs? Or is it actually different this time? 
Um, and I ask that because time and time again, whenever something new, let's say the internet, it was like, well, that, that will eliminate a lot of jobs. That will make certain things more accessible and there won't be a need for this or that anymore. Do we really want that? It feels like that argument is being pushed forward again. Um, I'm just unsure whether or not this is actually the real one or if they're wrong again like they were back then. Yeah, you know, David, it's it's a really good question because um, it is a consistent argument. This, this argument is always used with new technologies. Um, I mean, you can go back to the Industrial Revolution and you can read, um, you know, like the yeoman farmers were worried that industrialization was going to destroy their livelihood and all this kind of stuff. Um, but pretty consistently, as it turns out, um, production goes up and people find new jobs, right? So there's this idea that's floating around around AI that it's just going to destroy the economy. Um, so I'm from Texas and Texas now has the first uh, fully automated McDonald's, I believe, or maybe it's Wendy's. Um, it's like the first fully automated um, fast food restaurant. And everyone's like screeching about this and saying this is so terrible. It's like, yeah, but I don't know. I worked, My first job was at a fast food restaurant and like, it was a terrible job. Like I did not enjoy it. So maybe let's get rid of some of the bad jobs that frees up people to, to flourish and do things that they really want to do. So um, I guess to answer your question more directly, I, you know, it is different in the sense that um, you can see this technology very directly endangering people's jobs. Um, you know, here at the Foundation for American Innovation, we do a lot of work around um, modernizing government, modernizing Congress, modernizing agencies. Um, there's a lot of people that live and work in Washington, D.C., whose sole job is to just, like, fill out paperwork and, like, push paper around, um, you know, in, in systems. A lot of that stuff, you know, if we're not that far away. You could probably do it right now if you really had the, um, the funding to go in and just completely automate those systems. Um, so in that sense, yes, jobs will go away. Um, I would argue that those are jobs that kind of, you know, this is an, uh, this is increasing the efficiency, increasing the productivity of, of, of the economy. Um, there's risks that go with that, right? You know, the people that understand AI, the people that understand um, how to use these skills to make themselves better employees are going to have an, uh, a leg up in, in kind of this new version of the economy. Um, so rather than what I would say is rather than focus on, you know, making sure that we keep all these terrible jobs that nobody wants anyway. Um, we should be focused on making sure we're educating people so that they can take advantage of these new technology and make themselves more productive and more efficient. Uh, it's one of those things where, um, I mean, I saw a press release the other day where there was a mine in Canada that had essentially automated um, its processes. So you have mining without the need for miners. Um, and I mean, that was one of those interesting ones for me because I was like, well, that's a particularly dangerous job, or it certainly can be depending on the circumstances. So that's good. Um, but I also knew at the same time, let's say the labor unions were probably not so pleased if that's the trend and their members no longer have have jobs or the jobs that are needed in that space fall more on the tech side, coding, et cetera. So it's, a, it's an interesting balance. There are a lot of political questions at play here um, in terms of what's next and, and 
what is is I guess a benefit. I, I hate speaking in these terms, but like a beneficial for society at large. Yeah, and also like these innovations are happening right before our eyes. I mean, we you go between Barf and whatever's on the Edge browser and Bing and all of this. I mean, these are uh, evolving right now. And you have at the same time you've got Threads launching, you've got uh, Meta's Metaverse, you know, sort of evolving. So all these things are kind of happening. I think in our positions, it's always interesting, you know, viewing this as to what the policies will be. Uh, you know, we're familiar with the European approach of like get those regulations on paper ASAP before the innovation ever happens. <laughs> but uh, Luke, I'm wondering from your kind of position, uh, there's got to be, you know, clearer skies here, because I know there's a lot of the labor concerns, just like you mentioned. But also, you know, do you foresee that there's just going to be uh, innovations that perhaps government regulators cannot even envision? Well, you know, I think that's the real danger here, right? You, you really just put a pin in the problem of taking a European approach. Um, so, um the Europe is currently trying to do this with AI. They have this thing called the the AI Act that's just kind of it, it's not really super formalized quite yet. They're still trying to figure out exactly what they want to do with it. Um but basically it it creates kind of a do not pass go, do not collect $200 regime for for AI systems. Um let me put it this way, there's a reason that the vast majority of technological in innovations, whether they be in software or in hardware, come out of the United States of America. There's a reason that uh, Europe's tech industry has, you know, basically completely gone away. Um, and it's because they take that regulate first, ask questions later um, approach. Uh, so there's a real danger that that actually Europe, not only will they not be, I mean, we know for a fact that they won't be leading the way in kind of commercial applications of AI. Um, but even more importantly, they might completely fall behind the rest of the world, right? Um, because of this this system of like, well, we're just going to go ahead and regulate it. Um, that's kind of a, 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 a little bit of an aside. I think, you know, so one, it's really important that the United States doesn't follow that model, whether it be in kind of, you know, that that's a broad sweeping statement as well. You know, whether it's privacy, whether it's competition law, whether it's AI, um, the EU just has an entirely different way of thinking about regulation. Um, that we have seen devastate industries and devastate innovation. Um, what do we do now in the United States? How do we move forward? Um, I think that's, that's the question. I mean, really, this is a very interesting time if you go talk to people on Capitol Hill, um, because everybody feels like something needs to happen. Everyone wants to get their jurisdictional hooks into the AI issue. Uh, but nobody really has great ideas for, for how to do it. Um, I, you know, I think I, I'm a big fan of this kind of study and report um, idea of, you know, let's put together a commission. Let's get all the smart people in a room. Let's maybe have NIST create National Institutes for Standards and Technology create some standards. You know, like let's start. Um, they just came out with a risk management framework for AI uh, a little while back. That kind of this voluntary standards approach um, is is the way that I'd like to see this go forward. Um, because once you place the hard regulations and the hard lines, then there's no going back. Uh, I was just going to say, what would you say to those who would argue that the space is too fast moving and that the 
the conversation and study approach, while it might provide some kind of fruitful guidelines at some point, that they'll always be lagging behind and kind of chasing the dog. Is there any merit to that? I mean, certainly there's merit to that. I mean, it's, as I said, DC is often 10 years behind tech. At least this time, they're ahead of the curve and they're kind of, you know, well, not even ahead of the curve. They're kind of like on the curve, right? Um, I guess my response to that would be, um, you know, if you want to create, if you want America to lead the way when it comes to technology, if you want us to be the the 21st century economy that, that we promise to be, um, you know, we're going to have to like kind of take some risks, you know, um, there are risks that come with this technology and they should be considered and they should be thought about and they should be potentially, uh, I'm going to use the R word, they should potentially be regulated. Um, but that being said, creating hard lines because, you know, to kind of flip the question on its head, David, um, because the technology is moving so fast, that in itself is a reason to not regulate it harshly and heavily. Um, because by the time you can get through the legislative process, the regulatory process, I mean, notice and comment rulemaking takes at least 90 days. Uh, in the next 90 days, there will be a new technology uh, in this space that you know, wasn't considered when they started that regulatory process. And that's just 90 days. That's three months, right? Um, now imagine what happens when you draw the line today uh, and you know, what, what things won't happen in five years because you drew this hard line today. Um, and so that's, that would be my response. You know, yes, there are risks. Yes, we should think about them. We can handle them on a case by case basis. Beautiful. We'll hear more from Luke here. Uh, once we're back from break, continue listening to consumer choice radio. Uh, let's get into some crypto stuff coming up. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. We're speaking with Mr. Luke Hogg all about uh, innovation. We talked about artificial intelligence. Wanted to talk a little bit about uh, cryptocurrencies, blockchain, uh, Web3, whatever your uh, phrase of choice might be. And uh, again, I will point over to the website of the Foundation for American Innovation, VFAI.org, and we'll link to uh, Luke's writings here on that. Uh, he has a few on cryptocurrencies, on privacy, um, just from a, a general uh, point of view, a POV here, Luke. There's there's a lot of a lot of activity in Washington that a lot of people are watching. They're looking at markets. They're looking at legislators. Looking at various committees. Uh, it's never good for an industry when you have to constantly be on the lookout, you know, for something happening on Capitol Hill. Uh, but you know, from the point of view of an average consumer who might dabble in uh, the cryptocurrencies, uh, what is the kind of uh, view you think they should have when it comes to legislative proposals or or things being discussed on cryptocurrencies in Washington D.C.? Ooh, that's that's a that's a big one, right? Um... So I guess I would put it into two buckets. I think you kind of asked about legislation and regulation. So um, two, well, let's let's do legislation first, and then we can get to, to regulation. On, on legislation, um, there's a lot of really promising, uh, heartening things happening. The the House Financial Services Committee, in conjunction with the House Agriculture Committee, which has um, jurisdiction over commodities. Interestingly enough, very important. Um, they're currently working out. Um, a basically a comprehensive crypto package, a a piece of legislation that would um, really kind of 
clarify a lot of the things that we have been arguing about um, and c- get rid of a lot of the loopholes and, and problems that um, that have been popping up over the past few years. Um, most importantly, it really clarifies this important um, distinction between a security and a commodity that I'll get to uh, in just a second. Um, and it does some really cool things that, uh, you know, we've seen some lawsuits recently um, really targeting some of these companies. And um, a lot of this would kind of defang regulators in, in certain senses. Um, it still establishes like very important transparency requirements, it still protects consumers. It still um, is, is lets the regulators go after fraud and the enforcers go after fraud. Um, but at least it kind of, you know, clarifies a lot of the a lot of the stuff going on. So that's on the legislative front. Very heartening to see. Um, we've been talking about this. There have been proposals for years. Um, it finally seems like there might be movement. You know, I'm, I'm always a cautious optimist when it comes to these things. I would love to see it move and get through the Senate. We'll see if that really happens. But at the very least, we're going to get a good, solid package that has been approved by the two big committees in the House. And that's a big thumbs up. The big thumbs down is on the regulatory front. Um, as you know, any crypto watcher will probably already know, the SEC um, has decided finally to go after Binance and Coinbase, uh, the two uh, big custodial exchanges. Um, there have been rumblings about this for like a year and a half now. I think that that's the first time I, anyone ever um, mentioned to me that they might be looking and investigating Binance. Um, and it's kind of been interesting to see the responses. Um, Binance has basically uh, gone to court and kind of thrown their hands up and said, okay, um, we're just going to like not really deal with this. Coinbase, uh, Brian Armstrong, to his credit, is going to fight tooth and nail um, for his business. And, uh, you know, it's not the first time that we've seen that happen. Um, so in that sense, on the regulatory front, there, there's a lot going on and there's a little, there's a lot of hostility a lot of animosity. Um, one, Gary Gensler um, still really dislikes this technology uh, and cryptocurrencies. Um, but you know, it, it, but the the other interesting aspect of this that that you didn't ask about, so I'm just going to inject this because um, it's kind of my my area of study is the at the non financial use cases. There's a lot of people that are starting to look at. Um, whether it be blockchain or not blockchain, whether these decentralizing technologies, um, what they can do, there's a lot of more interest in that aspect of this um, than there was, you know, two or three years ago, which is really, really good to see. Um, and are we seeing movement on the blockchain side? Are we move, seeing movement on applications um, and having this used in real time? Because like one of the one of the knocks was that there was like the, the huge blockchain buzz and everyone talked about the capacity and then at least from like as a casual observer i'm not in the weeds on this as much as yael is or you um, but it seemed like there was there was a lot of buzz and then not necessarily uh, action that matched that buzz and i don't know if i'm just so outside of the loop that i don't see it um, but are we seeing that translate into like real world applications on the on the blockchain side? You know, it's a great question. Um, I would say yes. I think um, so. For example, um, Filecoin is a huge one. Uh, you know, it's basically a, a storage system that you um, 
you have Filecoin to pay for storing things kind of in this decentralized cloud. Um, there are, you know, um, social media platforms um, um, that have come up. Farcaster is one of them. Um, I think there, there's a few others that kind of float around. Um, uh, a former colleague of mine is building kind of an ad tech um, stack, tech stack um, to, to interlace um, kind of current Web 2 applications and Web 3 applications. So in terms of the innovation, in terms of the people um, building in this space, I would say yes, 100%. Um, they are, you know, there's a lot, of, still a lot of interest in kind of how do we use this technology to do other things. Um, I would add so the caveat. Is the, yeah. it, just to, to add to that, you know, what do you think is the, the kind of, because uh, if we look at the market, if we look at, you know, sort of um, where most people are investing or putting their money, it's right now it is Bitcoin. Um, what do you think is kind of the, the second best crypto asset? Which one's the best crypto asset? Well, Bitcoin's the best crypto asset. Okay. What's the second best? There is no second best. There is no second best. Yes, we all know that you're a maximalist. Max, maximalist. Uh, we all know you're a maxi. I would say Ethereum. Um, I like utility. I like being able to do something with money. I would be more of an Ethereum maximalist. Um, but I'm also not here to shill coins. So this is not to be considered financial advice. Please do not sue me, uh, Gary Gensler. Um, uh, no, you're good. You're good. I, I think, look, there's a lot of uh, very good, interesting questions. And I think there are a lot of use cases. I, I think they just don't come across David's dashboard or he just uh, doesn't listen to me when I tell him to download a certain app or do something. Uh, but that's fine. <laughs> no. Well, you know, Yael, I think that's... No. Uh... Go ahead, David. Oh, I was just going to say, I'm a, I am a 65-year-old, 33-year-old. <laughs> so this is all like, when it comes to to the the crypto side of things, I'm like my grandpa being asking how to log into Facebook. Well, you know, um, that's I think that's how most people are, right? I think um, when it comes to these applications, you know, like decentralized social media platforms or, or what have you, um, the thing that a lot of people don't realize to me is that like the the people that are pro decentralization are already in the community the people that are that think that decentralization is a value unto itself are already onboarded into kind of the d web web3 movement right um so basically if you're going to build in web3 if you're going to build decentralized applications it can't just be as good as twitter it can't just be as good as amazon or facebook it's got to be better it's got to be a better user experience or else no one's no one's going to care. Like, why else would you, why would you move, if you don't care about decentralization, why would you move from Facebook to, you know, Farcaster or whatever? Anyway, that's a total aside. You, br you bring up a good point, though, because, uh, you know, we're seeing this week the launch of Threads, a sort of a Twitter-like competitor from Meta. And um, I don't know how many millions of downloads they're, they're up to now, but it's, it's definitely been a lot. And you see a, a lot of people posting about it and everywhere. And again, this could be a filter bubble thing, but it's at least something comfortable for a lot of people who already use something like Instagram. And, you know, when we talk about financial services or we talk about blockchain or um, many of these tokens or coins, uh, it's also true that, you know, we think obviously in a very insular way about very rich liberal de democratic countries, but there's a lot of use cases that a lot of these other people who are in developing nations could definitely use. And, 
uh, we've been in you know a position where we have to send money internationally, and you know, good luck sending a dime into India or Japan. You know, these are like places that are totally walled off, and you do have utility there. Again, it's not going to be the gardener who's getting paid in a some kind of crypto asset. It might actually just be more in the international scale. Uh, but I'm, I'm thinking also about different ways that we're learning about how to regulate this stuff, or you gave some of the examples of uh, different regulations, rules, or, or large legal packages that are being discussed. Um, I'm just kind of wondering from, from your angle, do you see that there's going to be, I don't know, the, is it going to come down to use cases? Is it going to come down to number go up, you know, if we see some kind of broad movement in crypto markets? Or do you think it would become sort of a necessity at some point that we're going to have to have these intermediated uh, blockchains. We're going to have to have some kind of decentralization of data storage or whatever it might be. What do you think about that? I mean, it's hard to not say that line go up doesn't impact this. I think, I mean, look at the the recent crypto winter. Um, the number of projects that have shut down um, is astronomical. So, um, that definitely does play a part in this. I think there's a lot of money that's now flowing into AI for exactly that reason. Line going up, you know, their money was not flowing into AI until ChatGPT dropped, and now you put AI in a slide deck and you take it to um, Y Combinator, and people will just throw money at you. That's how crypto was five years ago, you know. Um, so that definitely impacts something. Um, it's also how blockchain was for a little while. There was a beverage company I remember that put blockchain in Long their Island name, iced tea, baby. Their stock price, <laughs> they're skyrocketed. Um, I don't know if we'll see quite the same hysteria here, but you know, um, for those of you that that aren't familiar, I would highly recommend you go and check out uh, this thing called the Gartner hype cycle. Um, I am a an evangelical for the Gartner hype cycle, and I think that we are. We are on the the uphill tick for AI. We are on the downhill tick for blockchain and decentralized technologies. Um, but the the positive thing, the optimistic thing about the Gardner Hyde cycle is that once you get over the the roller coaster, uh, then you find the actual utility of new technologies. Um, so my my guess and my hope is that um, crypto winter has kind of separated the wheat from the chaff. The the real good applications are the ones that are going to be able to weather the storm. Um, and those are the ones that we're going to still be talking about and using in 10, 20 years time. Um, you know, we'll see. We'll see about AI. We got three minutes left here, Luke. I wanted to get your take very quickly on China. Uh, you've written a lot about China and uh, how we in our free societies react to Chinese technologies and investments uh, there's a million different angles that we could take here, uh, but if you could do it in a, a nice little two and a half minute slot here, what do you think is the principal challenge for those of us in free countries that are dealing with the the onslaught of Chinese innovations coming from offshore? Oh my gosh, you gave me three minutes to explain how we win the sure China did. tech threat. Oh my gosh. Um, so a lot of things. Um, so one is investing investing in the United States. So that, that kind of comes in two parts. One is making sure that you don't um, regulate new industries to death. Hint, hint, wink, wink, AI. Um, you know, don't regulate these industries to death. This is, I mean, AI is an essential component of um, the global competition with China and with Russia and with um, our, our adversaries. Um, 
the second component of that is, um, you know, we talk about the difference between bits and atoms. Um, we got to get better in the world of, of atoms. We got to get better at building ships here. We got to get better at um, doing some of these technologies. You know, we do a lot of the innovation here when it comes to hardware, and then we ship it right over to China and let them build the ships for us. Um, so, you know, seeing ships investment um, is great, and kind of that side of the equation is huge. Um, but in the grand scheme, I think um, supporting internet freedom is huge. We got to make sure that we're we're protecting um, the freedom of the internet, the freedom of information, the freedom uh, of people to move, the freedom of money to move. Um, and in the end, I think you know freedom will win out over the Great Firewall. Look at that beautiful message. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Luke Hogg, Director of EtReach at the Foundation for American Innovation. Thanks so much for coming on the program, man. You gave us uh, plenty of insights and. Hope to have you back on and talk about the technologies of the future. Thanks again for having me. And uh, next time we have another wonderful AI drop, I'll come back and just do the entire do the entire program where all I do is feed your questions into the AI and spit it back out.